This podcast is sponsored by Oasis Aqua Lounge. Join our online community of sex-positive swingers and individuals looking to make connections while we are all stuck at home. We host events seven days a week and have hundreds of active members to meet and mingle with. Head to members.oasisaqualounge.com to join the party today. Hello and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we are concluding the conversation on research around sex work. For now! We are joined today by Alex Ufkis, a handsome man who also happens to be handy. And he's also an experienced academic in the fields of computer science. If the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy, but ideally both. Yeah. So I'll take it. That's very generous. You definitely like to. As a reminder, these studies go far deeper than the conversation we are going to have. So please make sure you read them yourself. I'm sorry. I, I, I got you. Oh, yeah, I got you there. You had no response. Oh, I had my response. I just, oh, you bit I, it off. I bit it off because I don't want your mother to maybe listen to this episode and go, Alex, what is your wife giving you? In her like really nice voice like she has that I can't imitate. It's my mom who listens to the podcast. She runs a very successful daycare. Okay, so today's article is, how come you laugh silently and turn your face away from the microphone every time? She runs a very successful daycare. Have you not? I, I don't even know why that's funny. But have you is. not been listening to my podcast? Uh, I listened to the first episode. That's the one you sent me. Please subscribe you, to the you podcast. Can't, you can't get me on this because I listened when you sent me the episode. I did it that day. Mm, fine. Okay. Today's article is all about Craigslist. Craigslist is nothing more than an internet brothel. Sex work and sex trafficking and U.S. newspaper coverage of Craigslist sex forums. I should point out Craigslist being nothing more than an internet brothel is in quotes in the title. That is not what this paper sets out to Yeah, prove. they're talking about how it's been quoted. That Thank you. So this is a study by Chelsea Reynolds from July 2020. Very recent as far as our studies go. Here is a summary. Media coverage of FOSTA-SESTA targeted sites like Craigslist in a way that made it seem like they're just trafficking hotbeds and ignored consensual sex work. And then in general, just talks a bit about the history of how major media outlets covered Craigslist in general and how it always ignored consensual sex work. So the paper is divided into abstract, method, results, discussion, additional info, and they go into their footnotes. The intro and paper itself is very long, and even the intro is subdivided. Sourcing practices in the newsnet, newspaper discourses, epistemic violence, journalism and public policy, aims and purpose, and the results go into historical developments, coverage of sex work. It's long. This one was long. It's a slog. Yeah, probably half the paper is just a summary of media coverage around Craigslist and just the paper goes year by year. Right. I found that half the paper was a summary of itself. Yeah, it's it's a very dense it it's felt. a very dense history lesson, yeah. Did you want to start? Yeah, so I had a problem with the very first sentence in this paper. The very first sentence in the abstract says this. In spring 2018, the U.S. federal government forced Craigslist sex forums closed. Now, the paper's talking about FOSTA-SESTA, and I'm no legal expert, but I'm pretty sure that FOSTA-SESTA did not include language that says, Craigslist, you must close your sex forums, right? So the, the, the very first sentence in the abstract, it's incredibly loaded, right? It is incredibly loaded, and I don't think this is the kind of sentence you should see in an academic paper. Because the government did not force sex forums closed, the government passed a law that would put liability on Craigslist for any sex trafficking crimes that are facilitated by their sex forum. I believe it was the personals forum, they called it. That's not the same thing as saying the forum must close. So what Craigslist, the decision they made, is that the liability, right, the risk we take by allowing this forum to exist 
the liability is too high, we're going to shut it down. Another option they could have taken was moderation. Right? Not but, moderation like drink in moderation. No, I mean, like you, you have people vetting each post and making sure nothing illegal is going on. But moderation's not perfect. There's always going to be something that slips by you. And when something slips by you, which it will, you now open yourself up to, to legal repercussions. And so Craigslist decided, we're just not going to take that risk. Right. And right? Tumblr and so decided they, the same thing with They decided porn. to shut it down. Tumblr did the same thing with, with porn on their website. Most depressing thing in the world. So that is very... So much good porn on Tumblr. Yeah, I agree. That is very different from what the opening sentence in this paper says. You know, they poisoned the well right from the start. The government forced it shut. No, they didn't. I mean, they closed it as a result of the legal ramifications of the law, but that's not the same thing. Right. So that really bugged me. I, I tend to nitpick a lot of this minutiae. I don't see this as minutiae but many other readers might. So I, I will end my TED talk there. Why is this paper so long, Alex? Um, longer than your dick, which is saying something. One reason Hi, academic papers are long, it, this has to do with the, the publication barrier of entry, right? Conventional wisdom says if you're going to publish a journal paper, you're not going to have anything profound to say in only six pages. If you're making a reasonable contribution to the field, it's going to take you at least 15 pages. Unless you're the most brilliant person in your field, you can't submit an article with only six pages in it because they'll see, oh, you haven't done enough. There's not enough here. Isn't there something to be said for being succinct? I think so. Yeah. And Especially with what, this one. Yeah, I would agree completely. But the reason that is not such a lofty value from the point of view of the journal publishers is because journals charge a fee per page. Right. Right. So if you're publishing 15 pages, that's going to cost you a whole lot more than if you're publishing five, which means the journal makes more money. So you've got this culture it's of, a you know, scam. Yeah. Flesh it out as much as you possibly can. More money goes to the journals. Academics tend not to care because their research grants fund publication costs, but it's a bit of a racket. That's why you'll see papers stretched out to 20 pages when realistically they could have said everything they need to in eight. I feel like this one could have been like also eight. Personally. Yeah. So great. Let's get into it. Um, okay. So the first quote in the introduction that I found interesting, national U.S. newspapers have largely reported on sex trafficking and related policy issues within a dominant representational paradigm that dehumanizes sex workers and demonstrates news journalists position as normative moral authorities in a transitioning media landscape. Okay. Here's some things. I am not an idiot. As much as I make jokes and occasionally sound less intelligent than you, I am not an idiot. And this felt like word salad. So for this paper, I started highlighting every single time there was a word that felt like not a word. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot more wank in this paper than we saw in the, the previous papers. Wank for wankers? Yep. Just flowery language that doesn't need to be flowery. Right. Like if I was going to summarize this, I would just say journalists decided to be the moral authority on sex work and were definitely biased in their coverage of the issue. That would be me just saying it casually That's to you. That's a layperson summary that does not lose any, it doesn't lose any of the meaning. I yeah. don't know. What about the dominant representational paradigm? Anytime it's someone uses the word paradigm, paradigm I'll Paradigm, you know, that's like it's corporate speak. like Synergy. You know, synergy and think outside the box and... It demonstrated their position as normative moral authorities. What What? Okay, legit. Normative moral authority. What sex position is that? How would the legs be? <laughs> <laughs> I got you. <laughs> I feel like a normative moral authority position would be like the one where like someone's on their back and their legs are over the shoulders of the person who's standing. That person is the moral authority and the person on their back is the normative. I picture the person on top kneeling 
with their chest puffed out and they've got a cup of coffee. <laughs> I, what I, are they doing with I, the I don't coffee? know. I pictured Bill Lumberg from The Office, him drinking coffee. I don't get your reference, but I know. And someone I don't, else I don't, will. I, anyone who's seen The Office will. But at, while fucking. Yeah, that's in the office too. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So this is just, yeah. Okay. That's my summary. I'm sorry. Gonna... Not, not, the, oh, I fucked up. Not the office, office space. Office space. Everyone thought I was an idiot for the last 10 seconds. It's office fine. space. You recovered cleanly. Okay. So the paper provides empirical evidence journalists' epistemic violence against sex workers in the digital age. So I looked up epistemic violence because this is not a word that you hear colloquially. It's not a word I've read in anything else that I've been reading on the internet. I would say mostly news articles at this point. You won't hear a term like epistemic violence in the mainstream media. That's an academic term. Great. So I looked it up. Violence exerted against or through knowledge. A against someone through knowledge. Apparently it was against or through knowledge. Against knowledge or through knowledge. That's what I was told. Epistemic violence. Yeah. I've heard that term. I've never really looked into the definition before now, but I think the idea they're getting at here is in the context of this paper, right? A, a journalist reports on something irresponsibly, and that irresponsible reporting leads to cultural attitudes that themselves lead to dehumanizing sex workers, making them more susceptible to violence, more likely to have violence committed against them. You would say the reporter is guilty of epistemic violence, if I'm understanding the term correctly. There's something there, but... Right. So the example is reporting on sex workers as not people and or criminals leads to people continuing to view sex work as deviancy. And this stigmatization leads to lack of access to services, imprisonment, or like another example that I'll give is people still view sex workers as easy targets for murder because a lot of serial killers will target the disenfranchised or people that they think society doesn't care about. In Toronto, we had a woman go missing for a day, a day or two. And when people started responding, what are you doing to find her? They went, oh, well, she's just a sex worker, which by the way was not true. She was not a sex worker, but that's what the police said to try and get us to drop it. By the yeah. way, her mom found her by just walking within like literally two block circles in different areas. She was found within two blocks of the last place she was cited. And the police said, oh, she's a sex worker. Yeah, and so don't, in the, in, don't bring it up. In this case, I would say the police are guilty of negligence. Right. But do we hold a journalist accountable for reporting on sex work negatively, thus leading to the, you know, the cultural attitudes that resulted in the cop just saying? I think that's kind of what epistemic violence, right? They they like violence has a meaning. You attach epistemic to it and now you can you can change what is considered violence. Right. You see what so, I mean? Like, you're never going to charge a journalist for their reporting right. when the a sex worker is murdered. The journalist isn't getting charged for murder. The murderer is. I guess the question here in the conversation is around the validity of a term like epistemic violence. My point being that I think terms like epistemic violence are a little bit hooey, but also yeah. there's some validity to them. Yeah, and I, I but think... But is there as much validity as academics want us to think there is? It's called concept creep, by the way, where a word takes on new meaning, right? And you keep adding more and more and more meaning to a word that already had a well-understood definition. I think I'm with you on it. When it comes to concept creep, epistemic violence is probably one of the more benign examples, as long as we don't start arresting reporters for getting it wrong. Because that is a, a horrifying dystopia. So as, as much as academic researchers might want to hold them culpable for the violence committed against sex workers, you know, we're not obviously going to do that in society. Let them use it the way they want. That should not break into the common cultural parlance, I guess. The way intersectionality has? Yeah. 
you would be hesitant to. I, I would be very skeptical if, if policymakers started talking about epistemic violence. Right, because there's no real way to measure. Yeah, it's just, it's not quantitative. It's not. Right. Then it comes down to, you know, you're charging people based on, on who knows what. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so then the paper goes into talking about how they're using critical discourse analysis, and it's basically the methodology that enables a vigorous assessment of what is meant when language is used to describe and explain. And it goes into it. And then it also talks, okay, more word salad. I can't wait. These well, are my so, word. Wait, I have more word salad words. Okay. I'm very excited about them. Okay. Media sociologists might also expect newspapers to frame Craigslist-based stories using definitions of social deviance, which are essentially expressions of dominant ideology and moral terms based on sourcing practices that rely on the deviance-defining elite. So they later define the deviance-defining elite as government, police, academics, other institutional sources, anyone that produces moral leadership. To summarize that section, reporting is biased. Reporters are biased. The sources they choose are biased. The sources they choose are the deviance-defining elite. I want to be the deviance-defining elite. I would like that on my business card. I would like it to say that is, that is one hell of a moniker, yeah. Podcaster, deviance defining elite. Yeah. That's what I want. I want the button. Yeah. Thank you. Do it. Yeah. What sex position is deviance defining elite? I, I'm There's bad some at sort these. of dom sub thing. The, the going word on here. pretzel came to mind. <laughs> 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 From Bill Lumberg to pretzel. <laughs> Alex has not been prepared with this in advance. He did not know I was going to start asking him about sex Can I just mention, so Ray mentioned CDA, critical discourse analysis. I'm sure there's entire, there's many, many papers written on that, but all that really is, it's the methodology by which the author of this paper selected and filtered and categorized the media articles. We can more or less treat that as a black box. We don't have to understand it while we're reading the article, but that is the technique they use to to basically filter their data, right? Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that part boring and I skipped it because yeah. I figured that would matter to someone else. It, yeah. Like that that's the part that matters to people who are trying to figure out is this legitimate research and what's the research. If you were going to do a response, if you were going to challenge their methodology, then you would have to challenge CDA and you'd have to go into all the background of how that works and how it's used. Right. But for our purposes, we're not interested in doing that. We're not. I'm not um, going to. So uh, the, the yeah. point is, don't let that throw you off. Right. Because it doesn't and matter. We were also talking about the. Uh, OK, you had a quote about Scotland. So early in the paper, there's a quote. They, they give a statistic. Sex crimes are amplified in the news with one study finding that sex crimes were 14 times overrepresented in Scottish newspapers when compared with official crime statistics. Yeah, now I remember why I wanted to mention this specifically, because if you're a layperson reading this, you might read it and think, well, what the hell is going on in Scotland? Like that seems like a very specific place for that statistic to arise from, right? But it can be a lot more benign than that. Maybe the researchers were in Scotland. Or they were just looking at Scotland because that's where their funding was for. Yeah, or, you know, maybe they got funded from a, a Scottish government agency, right? And so they had to do a particular bit of research on Scottish whatever. Or they were at a Scottish university the same way that all the articles I pull are on Canadian current events. Yeah, so again, something that kind of seems weird in the greater context, There's there are perfectly benign explanations for stuff like that. But the point I would make is that even though this particular paper says Scottish, right, it's out of Scotland, I have no doubt that a similar statistic would be true all over, right? If it bleeds, it leads. That's it. Violent crime has been dropping for decades, but you'd never know it if you watch the news every night. That, right. That's the nature of the of the media industry. Okay, I believe you had a word salad. Regime of truth? 
Yeah, there was a sentence in there. I highlighted one particular word salad that I thought was representative of the rest. Right, so it says the sexual subject on Craigslist is understood through the normalizing gaze of journalism, which produces a deviance defining regime. There's that one again. A deviance defining regime of truth about online mediated sex work. It basically says journalists are reporting on Craigslist sex work, and that determines what the public is thinking. Right. Journalists say Craigslist is brothel. People go, Craigslist is brothel. I mean, online mediated sex work. So it's sex work on Craigslist, sexual subject, like that's the sex worker. Yeah. Um, And regime of truth, like they cite another paper for that. So that has a broader meaning. It's defined earlier in the paper, but it means what you might think. It's interesting because, I mean, I think about this before when I was reading it, but I read these kinds of newspaper articles and I would just get really angry. Why are you choosing to report like this? This is ridiculous. This isn't true. This isn't what it is. And I have to believe there are other people out there who aren't slaves to the regime of truth peddled by journalists. There are other people who understand that that's maybe someone's perception, but that's not everyone's. Just the assumption that I'm going to be like cattle listening to anything that a media outlet sends to me feels a little bit offensive. Yeah, reporters are slaves to editors. Editors are slaves to their, you know, higher ups. And those higher ups are slaves to what gets ratings. Right. Ultimately, but... they're they're making money. And, and if your audience tends to... Towards the older side, you're going to have a more conservative outlook on such things. That's my question. Who is determining what gets written? I mean, I know the answer to this, but... Editors. And if the editors fuck it up, they get in shit from their boss and they right. have to, they get fired, right? That's, I, I just, it's exhausting. I agree. So, I mean, I think we talk about this a little bit later, but there's right. many online outlets like Vice. They, they take a much different... Right. So here are two more things that I think were really interesting from the section. Um, When elite political sources agreed on an issue, so elite political sources, a.k.a. your deviance defining elite. Yep. That's me. Me in the future. Uh, When elite political sources agreed on an issue, diversity of viewpoints was unnecessary. However, when there was a significant difference of opinion, then journalists justified looking for a broader set of perspectives. So the idea being that the deviance defining elite, your academics, your police, your everyone, They say sex work bad. Journalists go, cool, we'll report that. But if you have a bunch of people going sex work bad, sex work good, sex work bad, sex work trafficking, then maybe they'll go talk to a sex worker. Yeah, because that's a green light to look into it. If everyone above the level of editor already agrees on what the truth is, then you're just going to an editor is not all that likely to stick their neck out. It's part cowardice, part the economics of it. I just think it's so interesting that they're not going to bother to interview people who are actually the people being affected by these issues. So, I mean, the paper does get into that a little bit later. Maybe we'll get there later. Uh, And a lot of more modern nimble outlets do, right? Should we mention really quick that the the outlets that this paper surveyed for its data, I think it it was seven big print media outlets, Mm -hmm. right? So print media newspapers. So we're not talking about online outlets. We're not talking about any outlets that are younger than 10 years old. Some of them were editorials. Yeah, a lot of the data was editorials. And this is kind of a gripe I had with their methodology. They The author mentions, as, as they should, right, that some of their data came from, you know, the full-length articles. Other subsets of their data came from editorials. And that's fine, right? Because people read editorials and they form their opinion based on what they read in an editorial just the same. But I would have liked to have known what proportion of the data came from editorials and what proportion was from the more heavily researched sort of headline articles. That's one thing that's not mentioned, right? Is it 90% editorial, 10% research? Like, yeah, that would have been good to know. 
Uh, one other thing that I think was interesting based off of the options that they had, the author mentions that most of the articles at a certain point are discussing prostitution and sex trafficking because they are legal terms that describe sex work. And journalists are reporting on court activities primarily. So the language that they use is amplifying these perspectives that are rooted in the legal definitions and not necessarily the empowered, socially appropriate definitions that sex workers themselves are using, partially because they're not bothering to interview sex workers. Yeah. And that presents an issue because now if you're a reporter reporting on court proceedings, right, do, do you editorialize on the legal phraseology? That's not an obvious decision, right? Well, in legalese, they say this, but what they really mean is that's a bit of a balancing act as well, right? Reporting the factually accurate happenings in the court versus, you know, what's the what's the actual problem here? This term is insufficient for what we're talking about and here's why, right? Even though it is the legally accepted term. Yeah, it's just not as simple as we hope or wish it would it, be. It never is, yeah. So the last point that I found interesting from the very lengthy introduction, increased media coverage of a policy issue can serve as a policy signal that increases public responsiveness. According to the authors, without the presence of widespread media coverage of a policy, democratic representation and responsiveness may be much less likely to occur. In the case of digital sex work coverage, journalistic framing of online sex forums as trafficking hubs may increase the salience of sex trafficking legislation among news audiences. So here's my, my summary for those who did not process any of those words as I said them. Journalists report on something. They report on it a lot. Politicians go, oh, this is a hot topic. There's pressure to do something. Now we make policy based off of how it's being reported. So my question is, is this why politicians only seem to take action when there's public outcry? Is it that they are people who are also swayed by the media and the way that media is reporting? Or is it that they're worried about their polling numbers if they don't do something that's clearly currently in the public consciousness, in your opinion? I think the relationship between corporate press and politicians is far more incestuous than it should be. So I, I tend to have more of a nefarious take on this. You're nefarious or? The goings on here are more nefarious and intentional than accidental and due to incompetence or, you know, negligence. But without getting into that, I mean, the question is, do politicians go for it because they see their poll numbers dropping if they don't? Or do they go for it just to hop on the bandwagon? I, I think it's probably more the latter. If something is huge in the media and it's something that it, it's not really something that's on their political radar, they see it as a, a home run, right? They can just knock it out of the park. Everyone's going to cheer for them and we'll call it a day. Sex trafficking is bad. Look, we yeah, sent $7,000 for a phone call hotline. I, I, so much of what we've talked about in all three of these episodes basically boils down to that, right? The legislation won't change because it's still a political home run to come out clapping, you know, sex trafficking bad. Never mind what sex trafficking actually means, right? How it's legally defined, how horribly it's defined. As this paper is showing, this is all enabled by legacy media outlets. Yeah. So before we go into a commercial break, I have a question for you. Would you rather be part of a regime of truth or part of the deviance defining elite? I'm probably going to go deviance defining elite. Yeah. Team elite. Why? Anyone claiming they have the truth and I need to join their team, my instinct is like rage against the machine starts playing in my head. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. I'm going to go do something else. And everyone thinks that you're so mild bannered and that you're just cowed by me all the time. Yeah, this comes out a lot in our marriage. <laughs> Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me and I'll, I'll go jump off the roof anyway. It's very annoying. 
I do want to point out that he's not being he's not being dumb. I'm like, Alex, you should really stretch after you go do a workout. He's like, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. I'm going to sit in my chair for three hours (laughs) and hurt my back. That one's laziness. Yeah. Actually, before we like if it's time for a break and we're going to move on, I did have one more thought. We talked earlier about critical discourse analysis, CDA, the methodology that they gathered their data. Mm -hmm. In the paper, it's a bit of a throwaway sentence. The author describes how they're using CDA to, you know, blah, 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 describes it. This is how we're gathering the data. They say critical discourse analysis is XYZ. Although CDA is often cited as a research method in its own right, I, right, referring to the author, I prefer to think of CDA as an activist approach to qualitative research. Right. And so as far as I'm concerned, the word activist and research do not belong in the same sentence unless you are a researcher studying activists. Right. But if you're an activist and you openly identify as an activist in your journal paper, everything becomes suspect. It clicked in my head why the first sentence in the abstract is the way it is. Right. Why it's it's such a loaded sentence and it's inaccurate, frankly. The author says, I see this as an activist approach. So they out themselves as an activist. They are not conducting research. They are conducting activism with this paper. The difference is when you conduct research, you are searching for the truth. When you engage in activism, you are trying to enact social change, right? Those one can lead to the other, but those are very different things. So that's especially when you're reading social science papers. Try and keep that in mind. Is this being written by an activist? Is this an activist paper? And I'm not shitting on activism. But it's going to change the way you read the paper, right? It's right. You need to know what you're reading and what the purpose of it is. Yeah. So what is what is, what is the author's goal here? Because if they're an activist, their goal is to instill a very particular way I of mean, thinking. Activism you. is really important for creating social change. And we need people who are willing to do activism in order to get the world to a place that we all want to live yeah, in. And sometimes activism aligns with the truth, but not always. If you're looking for the truth, you have to be open to the potentiality of the truth not aligning with your ideals. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very important thing to, to keep in mind. Alex, are you trying to tell our listeners that they should join your regime of truth and be critical of what they think? I'm of, telling uh, what they read? our listeners that if you think I'm full of shit, you should definitely go and look for it. Look it up for yourself. If you think I'm correct, you should still, still go, look, go it look it up for yourself. <laughs> I'm one guy who's not in the field. I, I'm doing my best. So I keep asking you questions about the length of the paper That's, and, yeah, you should, and citations. You should be in the habit of not taking anyone's word for anything, especially when it's a random person you don't know who wrote a paper that you're unfamiliar with. Trust no one. Right. Especially the government. Okay. On that note, we're going to take a commercial <laughs> break. Sex News with Ray is sponsored by boobsandwings.com. Boobs and Wings is your number one place to get art on buttons by beautiful guest artists. What's the art you ask? It's a penis or a boob. That's why it's called boobsandwings.com. These are hand-pressed pinback buttons that are made in Canada. And a portion of each sale goes to the artist and a portion of each sale is gonna go to a charity that supports sex workers. By the way, I'm one of the guest artists. So if you wanna find all four of my penis designs, you can do so at boobsandwings.com. So head there right now, buy yourself some nice fashion, buy a button to scare your mother-in-law, buy a button that'll make your brother go, why did you buy this for me? Either way, it's gonna be fun and they're all pretty affordable. Once again, boobsandwings.com. Okay, we're going to hop back in to the paper and discuss the lengthy results. This is going to be a little bit of me summarizing. Obviously, Alex, hop in when you're ready. 
Okay, so before we get started, in the sampled articles, 50% covered sex work, sex trafficking, or sex crimes as their focus, and 19% focus on legal and regulatory efforts. Alex, do you want to know why this is really important? Why? Because if you add those two numbers together, you get 69. But um, Come on. That's really good. <laughs> Aren't you proud of me for figuring that one out by myself? A uh, girl you, who can't do math in her you head? Made, you made a math joke. Give it Thank up. Thank you. I thought that was a really important figure that we should discuss. Okay. Usually you ask me to do your math for you. I was reading this one. I'm like, wait, 50, 19. Aren't those numbers together? And then I got very excited about it. And I wanted to tell you right away. <laughs> but I had to save it in until I had you on my podcast. You've been, you've been sitting on that one for two weeks. <laughs> That's correct. I'm, I've been very excited about it. Okay. So the results go into a... First, they start with the history of how Craigslist was reported on. I'll pick, I picked out some highlights. 2003, Craigslist is called an online bulletin board and sex forums are being reported on like online dating was and was for a very long time. And yes. how was they being reported on? The dangers of anonymity. How can you really know this person is really who they are? But what, like, wasn't there a period early on in Craigslist where, and the paper reports this, it was, oh, it's hip and new, and look how quirky and interesting this is. Right. Right. And to use the reasoning of the paper, and I think it holds up, we, we didn't have an accepted public view on Craigslist yet. So anonymity, is it good? Is it bad? What does it mean? There was no collective consciousness right. on what this is. So reporters were free to, to, to sort of, you know, be a bit more adventurous in how they, and then it how they explored it. Yeah. I think when Tinder first came out or OkCupid, there was also a lot of how can you really trust this person? And, and you know, the Internet isn't the truth. And OK, fine, there's catfishing. But I think people are frequently more themselves on the Internet than they are in real life. Yeah. They, people don't even realize the information. This is one Be of the Because dangers. when you're anonymous, the consequences of being yourself don't come back and bite you in your real life. But your profile isn't anonymous if it's connected with your Facebook or your Instagram yeah, or but whatever. This, you're this, not really this, anonymous. By the way, just for the time scale, where these articles go back to 2003, which, right, they're talking which predates, about here. predates social media, even MySpace. Yeah. All I'm going to say is the way that they talk about the dangers of anonymity, that's also how they talked about online dating in general, when even with these apps where you could be anyone, you could use anyone's photo. And that is mostly true. Oh, but... there, there's a lot of pearl clutching. So you, you just have to be a bit more savvy. Right. Right as a user. And then it goes into, I think, 2006 times. It talks about the Craigslist killer and the moral panic associated with it. The Craigslist killer was a murderer who was finding their, their victims through Craigslist. It only takes one guy. <laughs> and then to it's, ruin it for and the it's, rest it's of us. It fucks it up. This is why we can't have nice things. Fuck you, Craigslist killer. Uh, 2010 to 2011, the coverage then turns to Craigslist's economic morality. You can buy drugs there and people. That's fucking awesome. I'm not not the buying people. Sorry, I, I started my thought before you added people. I don't want to buy people. I want to buy. But you want to buy buying drugs? drugs on Craigslist. I mean, while we're at it, fuck the war on drugs, shall we say? Yeah. So, uh, Craigslist starts to be seen as a figurehead of the First Amendment, which yeah. I believe is the freedom of speech one. Yep. Yeah. Freedom of expression. Yeah. Right. Freedom on. of expression. Right. You know, that's part of it. 2012 to 2013, reporting shifts to health concern trolling. Scholars are supporting paranoias about casual sex orchestrated online, pointing to Craigslist as a primary catalyst for poor sexual health. The reporting tried to link Craigslist to an increase in, um, well, AIDS in particular, as, as well as syphilis, they mention. So the quote from the papers, the authors link the site to a 14% increase in the rate of new AIDS cases or more than 6,500 new infections each year, and a similar increase in syphilis, 
And so the, the reporters have this to say about the data. The ease of seeking sex partners through Craigslist's personal ad listings has brought a culture of sexual openness to the younger generation not seen since the 70s. So when something like this gets said in an academic paper, you would expect three or four citations to immediately follow that. Right. But How are you making that claim? That's right. That, that's, that's what article, I'm saying. Yeah. Right. When a journalist says something like that, they're under no obligation to link any supporting data. They can just make a claim like that. Or if it's in an editorial, which I don't think this would have been, but th there's no links to the research that show that. So when you read something like that, especially in the mainstream media, they're going to, again, this is a factual but not truthful situation. They're going to give you the numbers, assume for the sake of argument, the numbers are correct. And then they're going to give you their opinion on why those numbers are the way they are, right? So the first thing that enters your mind should be, is there another explanation for this that has nothing to do with the narrative they're trying to push? So why would STI numbers be on the rise if not for Craigslist? Right. One reason could be around that time, the early 2010s, maybe there was a, a push to increase STI testing. I, I don't know. But, right, but that maybe would more be an explanation. Kind right? of like how COVID numbers rose when they improved yeah, testing. So, and 14%, if testing jumped 14%, the number of positive cases could jump. An equal amount, you know, right. A certain amount as well. So it, it's not obvious that their explanation is the right one, though it is a plausible one. There may well be many other plausible explanations that don't fit their narrative. But they're just picking up data point that fits what they want to report. Yeah, on. and I'm, I'm fairly certain I don't have this data offhand, but I'm fairly certain I've read reports that casual sex is actually down among young people in the last 10 years. Right. Um, so maybe this would predate that trend. I'm not positive, but I find that that particular report by the oh, by know. the Washington Post to be very suspect. Right. For all we know, they brought back abstinence-only education in a bunch of schools in those same years. That right? could be as well. I mean, right? I'm making obviously that's just an no, example. No, because because that that, that, that comes it, and goes even today in in yeah. certain states, right? So 2014 to 2016, you start to see a counter discourse about Craigslist developing louder voices in support of online dating, online sexuality, and digital sex work, and then the articles start coming out that define the difference between consensual sex work and trafficking. So even at the end of this, they're talking about sort of a change in the narrative happening closer to the end. And this is before COVID and before, but this is before, I believe, SESTA-FOSTA, when we had more people coming out and saying, I'm a sex worker, fuck SESTA-FOSTA. Is this, sorry, is this pre-COVID? When was this Yeah, published? 2014. So this is 2020. This was published July 2020. So during, yeah, so this during is, COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But Although this, the work, like the publication the happened pipeline before. happens a year prior. Right? Okay. But the idea being that they found counter discourse as early as 2014 to 2016, that's when you're starting to see a new narrative other than Craigslist bad, yeah. Craigslist brothel, Craigslist bad brothel for bad sluts. Yeah. And then that's right around the time Sesta Fosta. Right. So then it goes into the actual details around coverage specifically of sex work, sex trafficking, and sex crimes, not just in Craigslist. So the coverage on sex work itself was not static. Coverage of Craigslist-based sex work began with lighthearted candor, but transitioned to a moral panic as newsworkers chronicled a series of high-profile court cases that framed the online sex trade as Craigslist's central ethical failure. The over-reporting of cops and court stories over time corresponded with an under-reporting of sex work through a human interest lens. More legal reporting, less interviewing of actual human beings. Lots of the coverage then focused on the appearance and dress of sex workers. So the quote is, while Craig's work sex workers were stigmatized and othered in most stories, they were also hypersexualized and exploited. Re uh, newspaper reporters exoticized sex workers' physical attributes, making their bodies a spectacle for the public. Yep, that's the media 
trying to titillate. It's ridiculous. It's like when Game of Thrones put in rape scenes in it, the background or put in rape it's, scenes it's fucked, that yeah. weren't in the original books just because, oh, that's shocking and it's the same thing as sex. Yeah, they're trying to get you to have a sexual reaction to a story about sex trafficking. Or sex and work in general. An, an, an arousal reaction. Theoretically, it was about sex trafficking and not sex work. Yeah. It, it's gross. Yeah, I agree. And there's a bit more on this and I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but there's some discussion on how Craigslist free sex workers of pimps, but a lot of articles intentionally avoid the word pimp while using the word prostitution, and the author contends that this is because you're innocent until proven guilty unless you're a sex worker. You're innocent of being a pimp until you're charged with being a pimp, but we'll say prostitute whether or not you've been charged with it. Yeah, and so... Assuming that prostitution is a crime in the places they're reporting. So the point is they they don't say pimp and it and it becomes a gendered thing, right? Where the, the male pimp is not mentioned at all yeah and so one thing that i would think of i don't like prostitute is a legal term i don't think pimp is right i noticed this at a few different points in the paper they refer to someone playing the role of a pimp they refer to them as managers you know it, it could be that they refuse to say pimp and this is gender depression etc or it could be the reason they don't say pimp is because they don't say pimp in court because it's not a legal term so the fact that they report on prostitutes but not pimps there could be an explanation for that. So, I mean, somewhat I'm, I'm welcome to knowing the truth on that. Is pimp a legal term? I suspect it's not. We can Google it later. Yeah. Right in. Right, because they call them managers in various places. Right. So back to the uh, coverage on physical attributes. Every, oh, even teens who were trafficked into sex work were not immune from being objectified. And a USA Today, which is all human interest, story explicitly titled, That Slavery, a young woman described her experience being pimped out over the course of 24 months. While the article gave voice to a largely voiceless population of trafficking victims, it challenged the teen's moral character in the process. The reporter quoted the victim implying that drugs and alcohol led her to traffic other teens. We'd go to malls, schools, group homes, bus stations, and look for girls who were by themselves or looked very vulnerable, she said. For some of the time, Graves herself remained in high school, attending classes sporadically in boy shorts, small tank tops, and worn heels. I feel like... This is just really frustrating to me. I, this isn't about the study so much as about the way things are being reported on. Yeah, well, let, let's make sure, like, we're we're getting frustrated at the reporting here. The not, reporting. Not the study. Not the, the, the study. The study is, is presenting the reporting. Yeah. yeah, the reporting. These are the things that really actually make me very angry because we're saying that treating people like objects or commodities is bad and we shouldn't do it. But let me describe this person like they're a commodifiable object. So by defining all these things as trafficking, and I'm not saying that sex workers are commodities, they are selling a service, but I'm saying that the narrative around this is that sex workers are commodities, are objects, and society's making them that. You're saying that that is wrong, but let's treat this person like an object. Yeah, oh, one of the things I love about this paper is how much time it spends shitting on the media, because, it, and this is a perfect example, right? The, the media narrative is one of commodification, you know, they commodify the sex worker, Right. But the media is notorious for like browbeating and moralizing people for not, you know, living up to certain standards while they themselves are being re re refuse to actually take a lead on any of this kind of thing. Right. I just I think it's hypocritical and ridiculous. And how dare you sexualize a child? Right. They have every opportunity to lead by example. And then in, in areas like this, but they don't. It reminds me of when you see a sex worker invited onto a talk show and you can tell that the sex worker has been invited in bad faith. They've invited a dominatrix to be interviewed and then 
anytime they ask them a serious question and the dominatrix or the sex worker tries to answer intelligently, the talk show host cuts them off to make a joke at their expense. Yeah, the host has some idiot one-liner and gets an audience laugh. And like, But it's not it's even an so audience gross. laugh. It's a laugh track or a forced laugh. Yeah. And you're sitting there as a viewer. I want to hear what the dominatrix has to say. And you can see the sex worker getting visibly frustrated that they were invited in bad faith. They're not even being allowed to answer a question without being interrupted for a joke that punches down. Yeah. It's just really frustrating the way that people don't give sex workers an opportunity to be heard and then implies that they're vulnerable victims who make no choices for themselves. If we listen to them, it might upturn the narrative we've constructed over the last how, how many They decades. can't be a joke anymore at that point. It's exhausting. Well, and they can't be used as fodder for our political machinations and our, you know. Right. So the last point here for this section the 2018 anti-trafficking law FOSTA SESTA criminalizes online prostitution, conflating consensual sex work with sex trafficking, suggesting the discursive instability of trafficking terminology. Discursive instability is another example when I was like, I know what these words mean, but why did you pick them here? Yeah, I don't know what discursive means. Like, I, I understand what it's saying from the context, right. but it, like, I don't think it's that important. Why did you, yeah. But aside from that, just, you know, FOSTA-SESTA has specifically continued to conflate those two terms and and continued the legal wiggly-waggliness of sex work prostitution. Well, whether it's consensual sex work or not, it's still illegal in, in most of the U.S., right? There's there's one or two places it is legal, like Nevada. The Yeah. But w whether they conflate the terms or not, that doesn't affect the illegality of it. As mentioned previously, and I'll bring it up again in case you've forgotten it, sex work and everything around it is illegal where we live. Unless you film it and put it on the Internet, yeah. then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to change the term sex worker to pornographer and then we're fine i'm not a full service sex worker host i'm a, a i'm a private pornographer host a private inaccessible website that no one can get access to and just you it, it's like filling in the gaps in your resume mm. you host your private website with all your you know and that way legally they won't have grounds to come after you because you're just a private pornographer you got oh, you yeah. to get them on the technicalities alex would you rather be part of the deviance defining elite or a private pornographer? No, I still like deviance defining elite because I can I can insert many different meanings into that. You're gonna insert deviance is not just sexual. That's fair. So you're gonna insert yourself into different deviant situations <laughs> as one of the deviant defining. <laughs> okay. It's the act of insertion itself that's deviant in my case. Okay. On that note, I <laughs> I have no comeback. I don't even have a full thought. To I don't even with. know what that means. <laughs> I know what I was going for, but how did it play out? I don't Alex, know. fuck me like a pretzel. Discussion time, as in we're going to go talk about the discussion section of the paper. Please yeah, don't. Yeah, so most yeah. of everything up to now was a lot of, again, summarizing the timeline of reporting on all of this stuff. Yeah, we so, really condensed. Just to kind of to kind of bring things back together. So discussion. Alex, I believe you are very interested in Chicago Sheriff Dart. Chicago Sheriff Dart gets brought up a lot. Um, he's he's pretty much the go-to scapegoat of this paper. Whether that's a reputation deserved or not, I have no idea. I don't know this character. The paper points to this guy as being a cause for bad things happening. So like, here's a particular quote I did not like. The, the author is referencing a study, right? Saying this study appears to confirm Champin Schmitz, the author of the other study, confirms the legal observations suggesting that conservative politicians such as our character here, Chicago Sheriff Dart, and anti-trafficking activists interchanged prostitution and sex trafficking in their statements to the press, causing journalists 
to conflate the terms and justify draconian laws to outlaw consensual sex work, such as FOSTA-SESTA. If a sheriff saying something to a journalist causes the journalist to report in a certain way that is incorrect or negligent or irresponsible, that journalist did not do their job, right? It's the journalist's job to say, hey, wait a minute, like ask questions about this. You use this term, you conflated these two terms, you use the terms incorrectly. Can you clarify your statement? So saying that the sheriff made the journalists do this, the sheriff says what he says and the journalist reports on it. So what the sheriff says, that's his responsibility. What the journalist reports on, that's on them, right? You don't just report what he tells you and not ask any questions. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Right? It kind of takes the burden off the journalist for their irresponsible reporting, which I found interesting given that the entire paper well, I think is it's... about irresponsible reporting. I'm going to do a bit of editorializing of my own. I think it's because the author sees this conservative sheriff as a far greater evil than the journalists that we we have been talking about up to now. So if we can if we can put it on the sheriff, it, you know, it's the sheriff's fault. It's not the journalist's fault. The author seems willing to do that. I think everyone here is being irresponsible, the sheriff and the journalists. But yeah, I'm not like I said, I'm not defending the sheriff, but I'm saying you, you, you can't. Yeah. Say the journalist's actions are the sheriff's fault just because you think the sheriff is a is a worse guy, right? Right. They can all be crap people. Yeah. I, there's plenty of blame to go around. Yeah. Um, I believe in the uh, overwhelming humanity in us all. I believe that we are complex individuals who are capable of both good and bad. The, the line between good and evil goes through the heart of every person. Sure, the sheriff has a family. I'm sure he calls his mother every week. You know, like, people are people. Maybe he's a dickhead. Maybe he's just doing what he thinks is right. I don't know. Yeah, same with these journalists. But I do think that if you were a journalist, you have made an, a commitment. It, yeah, it's their job to, yeah. to sort this out. The sheriff's job is to uphold the law. And he doesn't and make the law, yeah. Currently, the law says this is illegal. Yep. Fine. Excellent The point. journalist is responsible for how they report on all of this. In the section on journalistic implication, the quote that I found most interesting is journalists should not assume that policymakers, police and political officials necessarily protect the best interests of sex workers or queer people who use digital spaces such as Craigslist. They should attempt to build professional trust with sex workers as sources in order to provide more balanced news coverage, an effort that has proven more feasible at some women's magazines and LGBTQ media, where the cops and courts perspective is not the normalized ideological framework for sex reporting. But relationship building with marginalized communities presents a challenge to the deadline-driven newspaper reporting routine, which is served by journalists embedded in beats where public officials are available for immediate comment on breaking stories. What the author is saying, I understand that it is more difficult, but if you're going to report on sex work, talk to a sex worker. It's not so black and white as saying journalists do your job, right? Because a journalist goes to their editor and says, I would like to do a story on this. The editor says, okay, but this is the angle. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it depends how much of a rebel you are, right? The rebellious journalists go off and found their own hip new digital media outlets. Until they get kicked off of them by the people. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. And, 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 you know, until that outlet matures and then you get stuffed suits in charge and then they, it falls into the same patterns, right? It's unclear how much of this is, is journalistic malpractice and how much of this is journalism's being bound by the strictures of their industry, right? And their editors and their overseers, their handlers, whatever. Well, journalists tend to have the, the same key people they go to for quotes. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. So why are they not finding their key... They have sources. Yeah. yeah. Why are they not finding key sources 
in sex work when they want to report on consensual sex work or sex work laws. They're not. They're just going to policymakers and not the people that the policy is affecting. When they could be finding consistent, trustworthy sources they could continue to return to. There's so many people who are sex work advocates right now that are both sex workers and intelligent thinkers that could be asked for a quote. So let me ask you this. Do sex workers report overwhelmingly that journalists don't talk to them? Or, or like, which perspective are we looking at? Because the journalists may very well be talking to them again. It's just, it's not getting past editors. It's not getting approval to, to for them to right. go That's look at it in the first place. But if we know from the sex worker perspective that no one is talking to them, do you see what I mean? Like that's how we could confirm that. Yeah. Like are journalists neglecting them or are they or or do they have their hands tied? Well, I think it's honestly it's getting better. Lady Pim and I talked about an article that was fairly recent a few weeks ago about it was basically trafficking versus sex workers. And it was reporting on these two women who were sex workers who funded their own research through their sex work yep. where they interviewed sex workers. And the article talked about them and their research and what's going on around it. The point being that the way that you get quotes from sex workers that get listened to are only when other sex workers are the ones doing the interviewing or conducting the research. A journalist is the person who was reporting on this. So I think things are starting to shift positively since 2016, which was when the last example was given. It's been four years yeah. since then. Sesta Fosta, I think, has made a huge difference and we might be seeing a shift in information even two years from now i think what would happen I th if we, I think we the, redid this now you know as a as a denizen of the internet the outcry against sesta fosta from what i observed was pretty overwhelming from people who use the internet you know as part of their daily lives right sex workers know because they know this is this is fucking ridiculous and this is going to have so many repercussions that the policymakers. i think they understand the repercussions they just don't care I think that's that's cause for optimism. That is is that the public reaction to Sesta Fosta is not positive. It's not universally positive. Well, speaking of policy implications by this author, talks about how things are reported on influences public opinion, which influences policy and implies that journalists have great power. Yep. Oh, they do. And they learn that when they go to journalism school. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. If they're having their hands tied, if you know they have to Take a stand, be a rebel, you know, take a chance. Don't don't just go with the flow and be a careerist. This applies to every career, by the way. Resist the urge to give up your principles for the sake of being a careerist, right? Right. You know, do what you believe in. Any last thoughts? Um, like point 13 in your notes? What's point 13 in my notes? Oh, yeah. We kind of touched on this as we went. Um, but I would be curious to know if you did the exact same study, but instead of looking at legacy print outlets... Look at some of the more modern online digital outlets, right? Like your your Vice, like not a lot come to mind now that I'm on the spot, but like Vice News and Slate. And there's a bunch of that, you know, Vox. There's a bunch Imagine of these. Imagine if they had only looked at Jezebel. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to avoid like explicit, like sort of feminist activist type websites. But, but like websites that are more modern, they're going to have far more feminist and progressive values sort of just intrinsically rather than having that be their explicit agenda. Um, so I think if you if you checked out some of these websites, reproduced the, the exact same study, I think the results you would find are exactly reversed. You as a person tend to distrust I, I, I suspect, paper yeah. media and like- I do, because you know as we've said, they, they fancy themselves moral gatekeepers and information gatekeepers. And I say, go fuck yourself to that. 
Right. Very calmly and politely, like you just yeah, said. Yeah, I'm, I'm very skeptical of someone who would presume to think on my behalf. Well, this is why people are turning to YouTube and Twitter for their for their news, because if I hear someone and I think they're interesting and I trust their opinion on a lot of things and I feel like their values align with mine, I'm going to want to listen to that YouTuber and their perspective on the news because everyone knows the news is biased. So if you're going to be biased, let me at least pick the bias I want. Well, yeah, it's but it's even more than bias in many cases. It's everyone's biased. A lot of the the legacy mainstream reporters will they will act as though they are above their own biases and they are not. Bias is important to look for, but it's more than bias. It's it's agenda driven very often. Right? They have a narrative they're trying to push. They are not letting the facts lead where they may. They're like, here's the narrative that we want to demonstrate. Let's find evidence to, to support it. it. It's putting the cart before the horse. And this applies in science as well, right? It's hypothesis versus theory. Data steers the hypothesis, right? You look for data that could disprove or prove your hypothesis. You don't look for data that's going to prove your pre-existing notion. You don't start with what's true and then find evidence to support it. You say this could be a thing. I'm going to find evidence that either supports or refutes it. And then the paper will be on this is not true and here's why. Yeah. And so to bring it back, I, I think it's more than just bias in the case of many of the big legacy outlets. They have a narrative that they want to push and they present information in service of that narrative. It's more nefarious than bias. Bias is, is innocent. Being narrative driven, right? Agenda driven is not. Right. So, yeah, apropos, I don't know what got us there, but I feel like that was a bit of a tangent. Sorry. That's fine. Aren't you glad that you're on a podcast so that other people can find yeah, I, your I'm, opinions? Because I lecture for a living. I'm used to monologuing for three hours straight. I'm trying to avoid monologuing here. I, yeah. Okay. So while this paper was a slog and it took us a while to get through, I did think it was interesting to sort of read about all of the different ways that Craigslist was reported on yeah. in the major media outlets and how that does seem to influence certain things. I know that my mom is the kind of person who will pass on an email chain that says, Dr. Fauci says this and doesn't vet the source. We know because it's sort of drama in the family group chat fairly recently. And I feel like the people who are listening to this are the people who tend to trust anything that comes out of the news because you used to be able to trust the news. And these are people who are otherwise intelligent thinkers. Yeah, it's or rather it, used it, to have it, this, to trust the news. It's not Dr. Fauci said this. In reality, it's CNN reported that Dr. Fauci said this. And that might be what Dr. Fauci said, but you've got five sentences before it, five sentences after it that provide context that yeah. could completely change the meaning. You just you have to be skeptical of everything. Right. There are people who will read the major media news outlets coverage of Craigslist and go, oh, that's all there is to the story. Right. There's a saying, trust but verify, right? It's like, okay, let me take you at face value, but I'm going to look into this. This is why they try and teach critical thinking skills in school. Although I don't think you can't, you can't really teach critical thinking. It's the thing that you kind of have to it's develop. It's like a muscle you have to exercise Practice, and build. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, how do you even teach critical thinking? You point out the common pitfalls that tend to plague people. Like for example, like the example we just gave, he said that, but okay, what was the context Right. Which outlet reported on it? Right. Because what's it, your source? You know, if Fox News is going to report on a Dr. Fauci quote, it's going to be a very different quote from what, say, CNN or MS, MSNBC uh, would report on. Same with sex worker quotes. Same with sex worker quotes. Right. Yeah, right. I think it's like Globe and Mail versus Toronto Star. They all have different biases yep. for different subjects, too. Okay, so that's it for academia for us. Next week, we're going to be back to just regular sex news. And once again, I highly encourage that you read these papers yourself and form your own opinions and do your own readings and maybe see which words stand out to you as word salad that are a waste of your time to have read. 
The point being, Alex and I have spent this time grappling with the text that was in front of us and the words that were in front of us. But just because a paper has said these things doesn't mean that's the only truth there is. As mentioned multiple times throughout the past three episodes, we hope you enjoyed our time back at school. But if you didn't, don't worry. Back to regular shit next week. Alex, if people were going to find you anywhere, how could they do so? They should not try because it's impossible. I am unfindable and unknowable. And not on social media? You can't even be sure you found me. Wow. You and you friend requested me on something. <laughs> That's not even you? That okay. was a that was a ruse. Okay. If you would like to become one of the deviants defining elite, you can follow us at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram. You can submit your listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. You can join my regime of truth at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram and TikTok or Razor Latex on Instagram, OnlyFans, and Patreon. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. Special thank you to Blue Microphones and photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. Thank you for joining us on this wacky adventure. We hope you had fun. See you next week.